Now, Mitzi, I have to say that your uh, CV absolutely astonished me. Uh, she's Dr. Mitzi uh, Goldman. She's CEO, as I said, of the Documentary Art Foundation. She's got a PhD, clearly. It's a PhD in cultural studies from the University of Western Sydney. She spent 25 years in the documentary film world. International film festivals galore. I couldn't possibly go through them. And I looked up the ATOM Award for Best Social Issues, and ATOM stands for Australian Teachers of Media, which I think is quite an interesting concept, that you're teaching young people how to make documentaries, how to work with the media. She's worked with the ABC, SBS, ACT in France, Channel 4 in the UK, ITUS in the United States, SABC, which I know very well in South Africa. I don't know it anymore, but I used to. And Mitzi's company is called Looking Glass Pictures. Um, the focus is on social issues. And really, she runs a program. Mitzi, I'm going to call you up on this. Education in documentary uh, making for 8 to 12-year-olds. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? To get young people to make document, uh, documentaries, and it's called Sprout Media by Kids. I think it's a divine title. She's a co-chair of the board of the Australian International Documentary Conference. So she's very highly qualified, uh, hugely so, to run this documentary uh, foundation. Then there's Susan uh, McKinnon, whom I've got to know a little over this past period in preparation for tonight. Again, 27 years of experience. Uh, Susan did the Paul Kelly uh, uh, Stories of Me a documentary, which I saw. It was uh, at, I'm on the board of the National Portrait Gallery, and we had a show of Paul Kelly uh, there, and uh, this was a documentary about the singer-songwriter. Um, Susan has uh, won the best doco, the best documentary in 2008 at the Sydney Film Festival. Tanya, I meant to ask you how to pronounce it, Litka. Litka. Eternity, Arthur Stace, we all remember that eternity from the Sydney 2000 uh, Olympic Games, or at least I do, I, it really came to my attention then. Uh, a sort of short um, film called uh, Fetch in 1998, which was included in Cannes, an official competition. Um, Susan was founding director of the documentary uh, Australia Foundation. It began in 2008. I remember when it began, began. And she's on the board of the South Australia Film Corporation, which I know all about via Emil, my son, because he's had quite a bit of involvement with them. On the advisory committee of Hot Docs in Canada and the uh, ACT Screen Investment Fund. So you must be a a financial person as well, Susan, with uh, some of that background, part, part of which I wasn't able to share because of time reasons. So I'm now going to hand over to Mitzi and Susan, who will hand over to Linda, who will hand over to Anna and Nick, and finally, after dinner, in absentia, hand over to Ai Weiwei. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Jean. It's the first handover. It sounds hilarious. Um, we're a very crowded menu because um, we wanted to send a, set a context to the film that you're going to see tonight. So we've got fantastic people here qualified to talk to you about that. I won't talk long. I wanted to thank Jean so much for 
getting her team, her fabulous, divine, lovely angel team together that cleared the decks for us. They've been working on this, you know, for months, me and Sophie, but then, you know, rapid fire in the last week, an enormous amount of preparation and expense and all done with graciousness and generosity and it's truly wonderful. We really, really are happy. Thank you so much. And thank you to Sophie. Uh, There's gorgeous Sophie. Sophie and I have been in contact for months and months and months and working it out and and here we are tonight. Um, With us tonight is one of our uh, board members, Kevin Farmer. Are you there, Kevin? There you are. Uh, Thank you for coming. And, And the DAF staff, we are Linda somewhere and Claire and Mitzi and myself and Robin Friedman sitting in the middle. Um, And we'd like to thank you all for coming out on the winter night when it's raining and we're so pleased that all of you came. (laughs) It's fantastic. I'll hand over to Mitzi who's going to talk about DAF and I'm not the only founding member of DAF. Mitzi is the other founding member of DAF and it was the brainchild of Ian Darling, who some of you may know, and he uh, was our main patron in the beginning, along with the Nelson Mears Foundation and the Thine Reed Foundation and Caledonia Foundation. And we've been going for five years. Thanks. Thank you, Susan, and I'd I'd just like to also thank Jean for that uh, wonderful introduction and for hosting us tonight, because it really is a very special and and new collaboration, and we're thrilled to be here. So thank you so much, Jean, and to Sophie. And I just need to make a very special mention to Susan and to Linda and Claire, particularly the three of you who've worked so hard to make tonight happen. Um, And it's wonderful for you all to be here, and I really thank you for coming. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about DAF because I suspect that many of you probably don't know what the Documentary Australia Foundation is and it may be your first time here and as tonight is a fundraiser for our organisation, I'm going to start by thanking you for supporting us. Um, the docu- for, for those of you, of you who are new to DAF, um, I think you're about to get the taste, I hope to give you a taste of um, quite a special world that I feel very privileged to be involved with. As Susan said, um, Susan and I were the founding team and we've sort of built DAF and brought it up together over the last five and a half years or so. And um, it's really become, you know, quite a, quite a special organisation, a unique organisation in many ways. And we, we bring powerful and often heart-wrenching documentaries to audiences who find these films quite hard to find often and um, they're rare to be seen and becoming rarer. We live in difficult times for documentaries, so an organisation such as ours is um, more and more critical. And the thing about documentaries that I've learnt over the 25, close to 30 years now that I've been involved in the industry is that they really do inspire people to feel and to think and to understand other people's lives and they offer us a window into worlds that we may not otherwise have any access to and in so doing sometimes really you know provoke us to behave differently and uh, that's certainly why I became a documentary filmmaker myself 30 years ago and I've worked um, 
as a director and producer over the years. And there's actually nothing that I've discovered that I love doing more than working in documentary, whether it's making them or screening them or sharing them with audiences or helping other filmmakers get their work made. And I've known the two documentary filmmakers that you're going to meet tonight for many, many years. In fact, worked with Nick very early on in my career as an assistant editor and um, have known and Anna's a contemporary of mine as well. So um, we've been fellow travellers in this landscape for my entire career, really. So it's a great honour for me to also be introducing you to, to their work. Um, Documentary Australia Foundation essentially brings philanthropists and filmmakers together to create social change. And we do this by supporting really great films to be made, by finding funding for them, uh, and by guiding those filmmakers to find audience engagement through screenings, through non-traditional pathways to audiences. So there may be broadcasters and cinemas and festivals involved, but more and more we're finding that not-for-profit organisations and different advocacy organisations, community groups, hoster screenings, internet, there are all sorts of different ways to get your films to an audience. And we help filmmakers reach audiences. And we particularly are focused on social impact. So films that are about social issues or about art or culture. And uh, so it's a, it's a very nice um, collaboration here with the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation because um, we love films that profile artists and culture and art is what helps us make sense of our world. So there are many diverse subjects that philanthropists support, from youth homelessness to recycling garbage to the sex lives of disabled to um, deforestation or habitats for orangutans. Filmmakers tell stories across a very broad range of issues and um, philanthropic interest covers those same issues, indigenous issues and uh, the arts, education. And these issues are really brought to life through very intimate and personal stories and narratives. So what we've found is that a documentary can really throw light on an issue um, way beyond a kind of local project might do. And over the five and a half years or so that we've, we've been building Documentary Australia Foundation, since Jean said it is okay to talk about money, I'll tell you that um, very close to $6 million has come in from philanthropy towards um, documentary that we've passed on to documentary filmmakers and also to help us run our organisation. So it really shows that it's happening. Um, documentaries can provide a link that, that turns a social issue into a social movement and we feel like it's, it's really beginning to happen. The, you know, its idea has come and there are many examples of it and the film that you're about to see tonight is one very good example of that. So we are a very small group of committed, we, we work with a very small group of committed partners. We're supported by philanthropy. Our partners are very passionate about storytelling. We don't receive any government funding. And uh, we're supported really by people who believe in the power of storytelling. So, you know, and this is, this is, this is the part, this is my pitch to you all um, for coming here and for engaging with what we do. And I'd just like to say that We've found many, many fellow travellers along the way, along the years, and uh, if you believe in documentary as an art form, as we do, and if you believe in the power of stories to be shared and to build audiences and to build particularly empathy and understanding, 
And if you believe in forging new pathways to audiences and creating spaces like this wonderful space to screen the work, the films that are really not easy to find or easy to see, and if you believe in making the world a kind of fairer and more compassionate place, then I'll, I'd ask you, I'd like to invite you to become a friend of DAF. Um, we're inviting you to, to join a growing movement, really, which is quite fun and rewarding and, um, and which is manifest in wonderful screenings and good food and great friends and good company and good ideas. And we have some other really great partners that you'd be joining when you become a friend of DAF. Uh, we're partnering with the Sydney Film Festival this year, which is a new partnership for us, and we're supporting the um, Australian documentaries in the competition where 10 films are competing for the Documentary Australia Fund Foundation Award for the best Australian documentary. And we do other small partnerships, the Mossman Climate Challenge Group in Mossman screen every year a film on the environment, and we screen to about 100 people. And we're, we're also partnering with NITV and a number of Indigenous groups on supporting Indigenous filmmakers to, to become storytellers and to find avenues to funding. So becoming a friend of DAF means that um, you will be invited to private screenings, meet filmmakers, become involved in, in as great or as little a way as you'd like to participate in this uh, growing social movement. So without any further ado, I'd like to just um, now introduce Linda Javen, who this um, passed the baton to Linda. It was a small um, introduction, short introduction to Linda. Many of you probably know Linda because I believe that you've spoken here at a number of events. Um, Linda Javen is the author of 10 books, uh, including the recent quarterly essay, Found in Translation, In Praise of a Plural World, which is your seventh novel. Um, hmm? Oh, The Empress Lover is the seventh, is the seventh novel. Um, and the non-fiction Beijing, which was published in May. So um, Linda's written a lot. She's been shortlisted for the 2007 Australian Literature Society Gold Medal. Um, she, your first very well-known book was called Eat Me, which I think many people know you for that, um, for that work. And your non-fiction work includes Confessions of an S&M Virgin and the China Memoir, quite a diverse range of work there, The Monkey and the Dragon. She has also written for the stage and she's a literary translator from Chinese with a specialty in film subtitles. While, while we're getting set up, I'm going to explain what's going to happen now. I'm going to introduce uh, two fantastic uh, documentary makers, Nick Torrens and Anna Bernowski. Um, it's an incredible honor and pleasure for me to do this. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. And then I thought what we should do is watch the trailers for their new documentaries, um, rather than me saying, so what's your new documentary about? And them describing it. If a picture is worth a thousand words, a moving picture is worth at least 10,000. So I think well, that's how we'll start. And then I'm going to um, ask them a number of questions. We're going to have a discussion that will last approximately half an hour. Um, so this is this is what's happening now. Okay, so I'll introduce them with this microphone. Uh, Nick Torrance is one of Australia's foremost filmmakers of independent and original documentary, and he's made films in Australia, Asia, Africa, Europe, the USA, and Canada. 
His reputation for originality and idiosyncrasy has produced many, many awards over the years. Um, recently, his Techno Tribal was awarded Most Creative Work by the Xi'an International uh, Festival. And his political series, Liberal Rule, The Politics That Changed Australia, won both major 2010 Best Documentary Series awards from the Australian Film Institute and Directors Guild. He is a founding member and former chairman of the Australian International Documentary Conference. Um, in 2005 to six, he was director of Headlands, Australia's first national documentary ideas development lab. He has designed and directed courses for the uh, for aft for afters, um, and his much awarded documentaries over 30 years um, have shown ordinary and extraordinary people um, responding to changes uh, in in their societies. Um, he the reason. The, the unified theme here is both he and Anna have made films in countries that uh, have um, strong ideologically based dictatorships. Um, and um, Nick has made several films in China. His most uh, recent one is called China's Three Dreams. And we're gonna see the trailer for that in a moment. Um, Anna Bernowski, um, delighted to um, introduce as well. She's a producer, director, and writer. Um, among the films that she has made in the past are Forbidden Lies, Helen's War, Sexing the Label, and Hell Bento. Um, she has, again, like Nick, received many awards. Her awards include the San Francisco Film Festival Jury Prize. God, she has three AFI awards, the Rome Film Festival Cult Prize, a Walkley Award, the Russian Film Critics Prize, a Dendi Award, two Australian Film Critics Awards, uh, the, New South Wales, the, NS, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, um, and on and on. Yeah, let's just cut to the chase. <laughs> If I was reading all of their awards, including Nick's, I think we'd, we'd be just, here all night. We'd be this here all night. Um, now, Anna, um, who is also writing a book about her experiences that led to the film that we're going to see a little trailer for, she's made a film in North Korea. This is absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> Aim high in creation. And um, it. she had un, uh, really... Um, unparalleled access um, in Korea, in North Korea, uh, to a, an aspect of that society, and we will be talking about that. But what we want to do now is show you a little glimpse through their trailers of their two new movies, and then we will start our discussion. Thank you. Thank you. 
sorry, they, they, yeah, that's, anyway. <laughs> so, can you hear me with my microphone? Is that working? Hello. Hello. How's this? How are one, you? two, three, one, two, three. Yay, Everyone's we're working. on. I think it's always That's a good idea. Are you being censored by China? I'm being censored by China. <laughs> okay, now that's working, yes? Yes. All right, fantastic. Um, there's so much to talk about. Um, one thing I wanted to maybe start with is um, I wanted to ask you both a broad question, and that is, you're both working in countries where, I mean, Anna, you speak fluent Japanese, but they speak Korean, which has some similarities. Um, and I know that some of the people you met did speak Japanese. Um, and Nick, you don't speak Chinese. No. Um, so you are, and you are both outsiders. You know, you mm. haven't lived in these countries for a long time and so on. What special perspective do you think you bring as an outsider and what are you denied as an outsider? Well, I look, um, I, I, I wish I did speak Korean because I think I would have been able to, and Linda, you've also been to Pyongyang, not Pyongyang, but North Korea, for one day, and you had the same experience that I did, which is when you go to North Korea, you're surrounded by two minders, not one, 24 seven. Um, and I really do wish I could speak Korean because I know that, you know, I was being fed one line and it existed about that high above reality. And then if I'd spoken Korean, I would have been able to hear what they were talking to each other. What, what I, I had a bonus with as a documentary filmmaker is um, uh, I had rushes. So even though they gave me a translator, Sulan, who uh, creatively edited everything that was said to me or I said to them, um, including at one point my camerawoman Nicola Daly uh, shot Go Back to Where You Came From and she actually shot in a broken down American tank in Baghdad. And Mr. Puck, the North Korean film director, simply wanted to know whether she was married. And the Korean interpreter said, oh no, you don't understand. She is a brave and fearless comrade. She, her, her version of what I said was, she shot in the American bastard's tank. And, you know, so the, the Koreans really did uh, very, uh, many, many examples of that. Thankfully, when I got back to the edit, I realized how many jokes they were having at my expense. And it only <laughs> added to the film. So, um, but I do wish I, like you, um, were more fluent, although thankfully there was a lot to play with from the fact that I wasn't. Yeah. That's apparent from this trailer. There's certainly a lot of that. Mm. Nick? Um, yeah, there's a lot to say. I, I suppose what the changes that the, um, the new uh, technology brought, the new um, little video cameras, the great plastic cameras, um, having worked for many years with film crews and and 36 silver cases at every airport carousel and drivers and so on, um, and then suddenly being liberated and travelling alone in China with a camera. It, it, made, it made me, over these last years, the films I've been doing there alone, it made it a whole new experience. And, but what I discovered was, whereas in Europe and various other countries, I always had a, 
notebook in my back pocket and I was constantly learning the language and writing down notes at least, you know, make one see phrases that were, were recalled upon often and then gradually getting better and better. In China, I was just shooting, lighting, recording, talking. Um, I never did any language learning directly and it was just shocking. I'm really, really sorry about that. However, um, I also find it tremendously valuable. Oh my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please I'm turn off your mouth. China calling. <laughs> um, but basically, it was. <laughs> it was basically a a, um, a result of being an observational filmmaker for so many years that you actually know what to shoot and when to shoot, even if you don't understand the language, mm. to a very large degree. And sometimes with people, I mean, sometimes people would be speaking, some people would be speaking some English, so there'd be a question of, of finding someone on the spot, terribly low budget documentary, so I never had translators with me or anything like that, but I would always find somebody or some method to, to, to uh, be able to work um, in China. But as well as that, when I had no one, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, the relationships that I have, I was filming for many, many years so on this film, so the relationships get stronger and stronger, and some of them do speak English and some of them don't. But in, 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 in essence, what's, what you're doing is you're, you're with a known person, you're with a friend, you're with a, somebody who's a companion and a trusted ally. And if we don't speak the same language, I actually know what she's saying and what, what's, what she wants to say and when she wants to say it. So. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary how much you can film observationally without speaking the language, though I'm not proud of not learning the language. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's uh, I mean, we look at these two films and they're very, very different looking mm -hmm. films. Um, and you're both, uh, you know, like a great documentary film, filmmakers you are, you are very, you, your observational powers are very strong. I'm very interested in, in hearing um, what you just said, Anna, about finding out about some of the jokes and so on afterwards. Do you think that as a, as just pursuing this idea a little bit, um, do you think that as an outsider you're sort you're sort of advantaged in that they wouldn't have been able to make those jokes yeah. if you had spoken? That's a fantastic. So you've got a lot of material from that, is that, that true? Yeah, look, that's a fantastic point, and it brings me with this Aimhine creation. I've come back full circle to the first film I made, Helbento, with my brother, where we actually dressed ourselves up as idiot gaijin on purpose <laughs> because we knew that people would would open up to us if, if we walked around like Gumby brothers and pretended we didn't know anything and we had kanji carved into the back of our heads. And in fact, playing the idiot savant in Pyongyang, who was, look, I should hasten to add, probably people in this room are very um, bewildered by the humorous tone of my film in North Korea. And I think I should address that first. The only story that um, seems to be fed to us in the West about North Korea is about the undeniable brutal regime. And I am the first to endorse Michael Kirby's report on the human rights abuses that came out this year in 2014. However, I'm an artist and I'm a, I believe in cultural diplomacy and the ability to expand knowledge between cultures through art. And it really has bothered me for a very long time that the only stories we're ever told about North Korea are that it's unremittingly evil. 
And I was interested in the 15 million people who live there. There are 24 million of them. But there are 15 million who do not fall into the United Nations category as malnourished. They're people who are trying to get on with their lives and have a normal day and who love their children and who have enough time to go to the cinema. And they were the people that I wanted to find out about. And in the mere act of pointing my camera at those people, I've been attacked in the right-wing press for being an apologist for the regime. And I'm not. The right-wing press is too busy attacking <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull at well, the moment. Well, that's true. I mean, I'm yesterday's news on that. But, but so I just wanted to, to make that clear. So my film does not in any way endorse the regime. All it does is try to show audiences the lives of these filmmakers that I met. I'm not even an expert on North Korea. I'm an expert on their film industry. I understand the films they make. I've studied them for three years. This is the book. And I became best friends <coughs> with them, and I ended up acting in one of their films, playing an, an evil American secretary. Um, and, then, and then I got sacked for my bad acting. Now, <laughs> One of the reasons my film has a humorous tone is I took that from the North Korean people I met. And if you think about it, humor is one of the best ways to cope with brutality. And these people are the most generous, resilient, funny people I've met in my life. And their humor was very Australian. They didn't like bullshit artists. So, you know, they put me down constantly. And at one point I said, I want to make a really arty shot of you waving in front of a mural. This is to answer your question. You know, please wave at me for my camera. So they stood in, this, in front of this, and Jean, talk about art. My God, North Korean propaganda art, please. Get Nick Bonner, have a, an exhibition here. Some of it is exquisite. Despite the message, the artistry is amazing. Anyway, so they're waving in front of this mural, which is the size of three football fields. And I thought they looked wonderful, and I'm saying, thank you, and they're waving, hello, Australia. And it was only when I got back to Sydney that they, I realised they were saying, hey, Australia, g'day, don't come and start another war again, will you? <laughs> I mean, if you do, you'll be in trouble. We may look happy to see Anna now, but if you do that again, we can't, you know. But they're laughing. It wasn't, it wasn't malicious. It was their thing. And the final thing I should say is the people I hung, hung out with are the lucky ones. They are the elite, they live in Pyongyang. So please, just join me in trying to understand a little bit more nuanced uh, picture of this country, which, like any other country, is not just evil. Um, it's, it's an important point. I mean, there was a long time when China was portrayed as, as China portrayed itself as being unified, and I was fascinated by that that fellow who said, you know, I still love Mao and I still, you know, no matter how much I suffered and I love the Communist Party. And all I could think is most of my Chinese friends would be, they would say, Shen Jinping, which means, you know, um, mentally ill. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, but, but it's a big place with many different things. And one of the things that's happened, I mean, what you said, you know, you can go in with your little camera and you can film over years. China also is very different from the time when it was more like North Korea. Yes. Right. In that you can get in there with a camera and, and do what you want to do. Um, I mean, Could I just yes, interrupt I you for to... a second? I mean, when I first was filming, I think in the early 80s, um, I had the, the PLA soldiers would would uh, make me erase tapes and things sometimes, and there'd be various 
moments where I'd, I'd be called in to a, to, a, to, a, to a guard post and I'd be sort of told to what was I doing and all that sort of thing. I never had serious problems, but I often had to erase tapes. But over the years it became, as you're saying, so much easier to film in China. I mean, for a start, um, cameras are, are used, they're such a commonplace with everybody everywhere. So at first I was like, who is that guy with a camera? What's he doing? Who is he work, working for? It's, it's just, of course, not like that anywhere now. And, and also you're not a reporter because those people are still having their cameras smashed and their faces punched. That's right. Yes. And I'm not, well, the you're other thing... You're not going into a sensitive, sensitive topic. Oh, that way. oh. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. Sorry. That's okay. And so you're not. Um, yeah, also no, that's true. Yeah. That's true. But but the point about that is that it's quite interesting that that you also, of course, get more and more um, adept at avoiding uh, problems of profile. So basically, I have haven't had problems for years in China, not just because everyone has cameras, but yes, you. You know, if you if you learn that you don't um, film disputes in public, that you don't film protests, that you don't actually go chasing the um, politicians for, for for messages that put you on the list and all that sort of thing, then then you can keep completely below the surface. And over the last film, this last film, I've been absolutely just wanting to give to carry the voice of the ordinary people to the West, because I've always found that. What, well, from the mid-90s, I was finding that um, the only things we learned about China were really news, current affairs, and, you know, present a factual. You know, do, uh, what used to be called documentaries called factual now, and there'd be a presenter from another country telling you what to think um, while they walked around China, and I wanted to actually get amongst the people and let them tell their stories. I didn't really tell the stories. Um, that's, yes, well, this is a very interesting point. Um, and that is, uh, and it, it does illustrate a difference between China today that you're working in and the North Korea. Um, a long time ago when uh, China was a completely closed society, the great Sinologist and Jeremy Barmey's uh, teacher, Simon Lay's, Pierre Rickman's, um, said, described what happened when suddenly the people who were explaining China to the West were joined by voices of the Chinese themselves. And one of the sad things is we really don't read enough Chinese literature. We don't see enough Chinese documentaries. But I just want to re read a little quote from Simon Lays and just ask um, if you have something to comment on this. But he said, should fish suddenly just start to talk? I suppose that ichthyology would also have to undergo, undergo a dramatic revision of its basic approach. A certain type of instant sinology was indeed based on the assumption that the Chinese people were as different from us in their fundamental aspirations and as unable to communicate with us as the inhabitants of the oceanic depths. And when they eventually rose to the surface and began to cry out sufficiently loudly for their message to get through to the general public, there was much consternation among the China pundits. Yeah. <laughs> I Very completely, that <clears throat> nails it for me. Um, there's a, a man in, in my family Film, uh, Park Sung-soo, who's kind of like the North Korean Martin Scorsese, and for whatever reason, he took me... No, seriously, I mean, they, they make 30 to 40 films a year. They are the only country left on Earth that still shoots non-sync sound on, 90, on 35 millimeter 1950s celluloid. 
they still go to cinemas to see films shot on film, which is kind of nostalgically beautiful, like vinyl records. And then Martin Scorsese took me under his wing to kind of educate me in how to make their propaganda movies. And um, I think that his comment really sums it up best for me, which is why it's in the trailer, but it's also one of the, you know, the it moments for me in the film, where I said to him, you know, as a North Korea I thought expert at the time because I'd read everything everyone else had said about North Korea, all those other experts who've never been there. Um, so, Mr. Park, do you believe in, do you know about climate change? And he took a drag on his cigarette because they all smoke and he said, we don't live on the fucking moon. <laughs> <laughs> they are, you know, okay, they are isolated, they have no internet, they've never heard of Kim Kardashian, let alone Stanley Kubrick, that makes sense. Think about what Kubrick's movies are about. But they do know about James Cameron. Uh, they do know about climate change. They know about solar and of course they know the propaganda they're fed about the West. However, there was a genuine feeling while I was making this film that they wanted to reach out to me, especially at the end. Um, fascinating. I mean, we could go, we still have five, yeah. do we have five minutes or less? No. No, we don't have it. I think it would be nice My, to have questions as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, gosh, so many, so many things could, to talk about. Could I just about, say one thing yes, about please. the man you mentioned? Because I found it incredibly important as I got more and more, I was filming this for 15 years, and as I got more and more close to the subjects and the people that I was, it's basically come down to two main stories in this particular feature documentary, but as I got closer to them and they got more trust in me and, and we became friends and, and we knew what we were doing together and they, what they were doing was as important as what I was doing, um, I began, of course, to get let in to people who were really, extraordinary. And what I discovered more and more was that the stories of the Cultural Revolution that, are, that were never um, allowed out because it's not taught um, in any sense or analysed and because the young people aren't interested and the older people are silent for reasons of guilt or reasons of pain, what happened was that there is a huge, in every family I found, a trauma which needs resolving yes. and I actually was that kind of person That's that helped that. And people actually broke down while they told me things because at last they could tell me things. That's, yes, yeah. I mean, the, that is that is very important. I mean, I should note before we just go to questions that the Chinese have been making amazing documentaries underground, yes. including on the Cultural yes. Revolution and so and on. And Wang Bin's new film is at the film festival. Exactly, mm. so we will, how many, how much time? Three. We have three. <laughs> three quick questions, no statements please, only questions. I will cut you off if you make a statement. Any, any questions? Raise your hand if you have a question. Any question. In yeah. there, back there. Oh, wait a second. We can hear. We can hear. Actually, if you give me the mic, and I'll repeat the question. Yeah. What is it? I'm wondering where we can see the two films. Ah, that's an easy question. Where can we see these two wonderful films? Okay, um, thank you very much, because it saved me the hassle of having to pimp it myself. Um, it opens at the Chevelle Cinema in Paddington, just round the corner on June the 12th, next Thursday. Um, there are Q&As all through the weekend. There's a big Walkley Foundation Q&A run by Ross Coulthart, the Channel, former Channel 7 Walkley Award-winning journalist, on Friday the 13th, if you want to have a big slap-bang discussion about North Korea. Otherwise, please just turn up. Chevelle, 
June the 3rd to 12th, next week, and it will go as long as people go. So please go. <laughs> and Nick? Um, I finished my film after 15 years last week. And, um, Congrats. I, I have been making other films during that process, but essentially this one um, has monopolised me for three years. It's um, premiering at the Sydney Film Festival on Saturday night, but it's sold out in about three days. Wow. So um, they are probably going to have a second screening on the second Saturday of the film festival. Um, that's all I can sort of offer at the moment because it is documentary and because television doesn't really want to show documentary anymore. Excellent. That's okay, great. great. Maybe right. just one more question. Oh, sure, they're online. Just the yeah, trailers online. are and online. Aimhighincreation.com. And, and, yeah. and we're going to have a little break before the Ai Weiwei film, so you can ask those burning questions to these two.